Chapter Twenty One of The Restoration of the Gospel by Osborne J. P. Widso. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Wayne Cook. Further Witnesses to the Restoration. The Latter day Saints lay claim to so much, and there are so many impostures in the world, that it is more than fortunate to have the mission of the American prophet attested not only by the marvellous results of his works but also by the words of witnesses it is asserted by the latter-day saints that they and they alone of all the religious denominations in the world possess the gospel of the lord jesus in its purity and in its fullness the sects may promulgate small portions of the law of liberty they may teach truth in part it is not claimed by the latter-day saints that they have a monopoly on truth indeed every sect that survives the vicissitudes of time must possess some of the fabric of truth in its structure no organization can persist on a foundation of absolute falsehood but whereas the sectarian creeds present the power of god unto salvation in part only the mormon creed presents it in full in its natural simplicity and not perverted by the doctrines of men it is asserted by the latter-day saints that they and they alone of all the religious denominations of the world possess a correct church organization patterned after that of the primitive church of christ and the apostles other church organizations retain parts of the original form but each one has lost some part or other of the perfect body one member has wasted away from disuse here and another there until the process of atrophy has left but few of the original officers and duties of the church the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints however has a perfect organization all the officers of the primitive church may be found in it and their several duties are thoroughly understood moreover it is asserted by the latter-day saints that not only do they alone possess the gospel and its fullness and the correct church organization but they alone have authority from heaven to officiate in the ordinances and ceremonies of the church other preachers pastors and ministers may presume to present themselves as servants of the most high but they possess no divine appointment they have received no ordination by divine authority the elders of the church of jesus christ alone are endowed with the divine right to preach the gospel and to administer in its ordinances Quote, few things about jesus are more striking or unquestionable than his sense of authority end quote, says a noted theological student footnote professor samuel dickey quote, the significance of the baptism of jesus for his conception of his ministry end quote, in biblical world june nineteen eleven to latter-day saints this statement is of peculiar interest they believe that quote, a man must be called of god by prophecy and by the laying out of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof a ceremony performed by a man not so called and ordained can be of no authoritative effect the sense of authority then found so strikingly present in the ministry of jesus is but the divine appreciation and the divine manifestation of the necessity of authority quote, i am not come of myself footnote john seven twenty eight he was wont to say quote, i am come in my father's name and ye receive me not if another shall come in his own name him ye will receive footnote john five forty three 
that appreciation of the necessity of divine authority was so strongly marked in the ministry of jesus that he called attention to it even in the sending forth of his apostles it was not enough that he should be called of god they too must receive the call and be ordained Quote, ye have not chosen me he said emphasizing the fact that a man cannot choose himself to become an apostle of the lord but i have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring forth fruit End quote. footnote john fifteen sixteen for quote, as my father hath sent me even so send i you End quote. footnote john twenty twenty one and the apostles in their turn learned so well to understand the principle of divine authority that they challenged the ministry of any man who was not authorized by jesus quote, a man can receive nothing explained john the baptizer when his disciples complained that jesus drew all men to him except it be given him from heaven End quote. footnote john three twenty seven and Paul explained that no man can take the honor of the priesthood to himself, quote, but he that was called of God, as was Aaron. Footnote. Hebrews 5, 4. This appreciation of the necessity of divine authority was not peculiar to Jesus and his apostles. Holy men of God have felt it in every age. Only those who have been divinely called can be qualified to speak in the name of the Lord. This statement is true for the modern prophet, as it is for the prophets of old. For it may be said with truth that few things about Joseph Smith are more striking or unquestionable than his sense of the necessity of authority. He had seen the Father and the Son in vision. He had been visited repeatedly by an angel of heaven. He had translated a sacred record by the power of God yet he did not presume to promulgate the restored gospel or to send others to do so or to organize a church he felt that he had not yet divine authority to do these things he waited till authority should be given him was he an impostor had he been so he might easily have assumed authority he might have proclaimed to the world that he had received authority and trusted that the world would believe his statement certainly had he been an impostor, he would have called in no man to witness the imposture that he was foisting upon the world. What did Joseph Smith do? In the previous chapter we have learned how the opening visions of the new dispensation, the revelations that form the foundation stone of the church, are attested by the testimony of witnesses. It has been said that the Latter-day Saints lay claim to so much, and that there are so many impostures in the world that it is more than fortunate to have the mission of the American prophet attested not only by the marvelous results of his work, but also by the words of witnesses. It will be interesting now to recall the way in which Joseph Smith received authority from heaven. It will be interesting further to learn whether or not there were witnesses to the fact. It will not be too much again to assert that not a single important step in the progress of the Restoration was taken without corroborative testimony or the presence of witnesses. The prophet Joseph Smith teaches that there are two divisions of the priesthood of God, and he asserts that he received the authority of both divisions by the direct ministration of heavenly beings. He does more than assert that he received the holy priesthood by divine ordination. An impostor might do so much. Joseph Smith describes the manner in which the priesthood was conferred upon him, 
and he provides a witness who, after many years, confirms by his solemn testimony the words of the prophet. Such a procedure is contrary to the methods of an impostor. The Aaronic priesthood, the lesser division of the priesthood of God, was restored through the ministration of one heavenly being. It appears that John the Baptizer was the man of presiding authority to hold that division of the priesthood during the dispensation of the meridian of time. When it became necessary to restore the Aaronic priesthood in the new gospel dispensation, John the Baptizer came to perform the important ceremony. Joseph Smith relates how this great forerunner of Messiah came down from heaven and in awe-inspiring words conferred upon him the holy priesthood after the order of Aaron. The relation is plain, ungarnished. There is no comment. There is no argument. There is no embellishment. There is no ecstatic eloquence. It is a matter of fact that it has happened, and the prophet states it in his usual, simple, matter-of-fact way. The holy priesthood after the order of Aaron had been restored May 15, 1829. But the Aaronic priesthood did not endow the prophet with full authority to establish the Church of Christ, or even to officiate in the higher ordinances of the Church. The authority of the higher priesthood was still necessary to the full accomplishment of the mission of the prophet. That authority was not long in coming. Less than two months after the appearance of John the Baptizer, Peter, James, and John appeared on the banks of the Susquehanna River and conferred upon the prophet the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Peter, James, and John constituted the presidency of the primitive church after the crucifixion of Jesus. They formed the presidency of the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek before the dispensation of the fullness of times. When it became necessary in the new dispensation to restore this priesthood, Peter, James, and John attended personally to the holy ordinance. Again, the narrative is plain and simple. The prophet, however, comes nearer to ecstatic utterance in speaking of the sublime manifestation than is customary with him. Yet it is, after all, a matter-of-fact narration of a matter-of-fact. The holy priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, was restored through the ministration of Peter, James, and John. Can Joseph Smith be believed in these assertions? Fortunately, he was not alone in these two marvelous manifestations, as he had been in those earlier visions that laid the foundation of the further superstructure of the church. When Joseph Smith went into the wood to pray on May 15, 1829, that he might get light on the ordinance of baptism, Oliver Cowdery was with him. When John the Baptizer appeared, it was not Joseph Smith alone who saw him. Oliver Cowdery saw him as well. And when the baptizer restored officially the Aaronic priesthood, it was not Joseph Smith alone whom he ordained. Oliver Cowdery received the same ordination with the prophet. And Oliver Cowdery has described the event in words of power and vividness. Quote, These were days never to be forgotten. To sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven awakened the utmost gratitude of this bosom. Day after day I continued, uninterrupted, to write from his mouth, as he translated with the Urman Thummim, or as the Nephites would have said, interpreters, the history or record called the Book of Mormon. To notice, even in few words, the interesting account given by Mormon and his faithful son Moroni, of a people once beloved and favored of heaven, would supersede my present design. 
I shall therefore defer this to a future period, and, as I said in the introduction, pass more directly to some few incidents immediately connected with the rise of this church, which may be entertaining to some thousands who have stepped forward amid the frowns of bigots and the calumny of hypocrites, and embraced the gospel of Christ. No men in their sober senses could translate and write the directions given to the Nephites from the mouth of the Saviour, of the precise manner which these men should build up his church, and especially when corruption had spread an uncertainty over all forms and systems practiced among men, without desiring a privilege of showing the willingness of the heart by being buried in the liquid grave, to answer a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After writing the account given of the Saviour's ministry to the remnant of the seed of Jacob upon this continent, it was easy to be seen, as the prophet said would be, that darkness covered the earth, and gross darkness the minds of the people. On reflecting further, it was easy to be seen that amid the great strife and noise concerning religion, none had authority from God to administer the ordinances of the gospel. For the question might be asked, have men authority to administer in the name of Christ, who deny revelations, when his testimony is no less than the spirit of prophecy, and his religion based, built, and sustained by immediate revelations in all ages of the world, when he has had a people on earth? If these facts were buried and carefully concealed by men, whose craft would have been in danger if once permitted to shine in the faces of men, they were no longer to us, and we only waited for the commandment to be given, Arise and be baptized. This was not long before it was realized. The Lord, who is rich in mercy and ever willing to answer the consistent prayer of the humble, after we had called upon him in a fervent prayer, aside from the abodes of men, condescended to manifest to us his will. Of a sudden, as from the midst of eternity, the voice of the Redeemer spake peace to us, while the veil was parted, and the angel of God came down clothed with glory, and delivered the anxiously looked-for message, and the keys of the gospel of repentance. What joy! What wonder! What amazement! While the world was racked and distracted, while millions were groping as the blind for the wall, and while all men were resting upon uncertainty as a general mass, our eyes beheld, our ears heard, as in the blaze of day, yes, more, above the glitter of the May sunbeam, which then shed its brilliancy over the face of nature. Then his voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow-servant, dispelled every fear. We listened, we gazed, we admired. T'was the voice of an angel from glory, t'was a message from the Most High, and as we heard, we rejoiced, while his love unkindled upon our souls, and we were wrapped in the vision of the Almighty. Where was room for doubt? Nowhere. Uncertainty had fled, doubt had sunk no more to rise, while fiction and deception had fled forever. But, dear brother, think, think further for a moment what joy filled our hearts, and with what surprise we may have bowed, for who would not have bowed the knee for such a blessing, when we received under his hand the holy priesthood, as he said, Upon you, my fellow-servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority, which shall remain upon earth 
till the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. I shall not attempt to paint to you the feelings of this heart, nor the majestic beauty and glory which surrounded us on this occasion. But you will believe me when I say, the earth, nor men, with the eloquence of time, cannot begin to clothe language in as interesting and sublime a manner as this holy personage. No, nor has earth power to give the joy, to bestow the peace, or comprehend the wisdom which was contained in each sentence as they were delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man may deceive his fellow man, deception may follow deception, and the children of the wicked one may have power to seduce the foolish and untaught, till naught but fiction feeds the many, and the fruit of falsehood carries in its current the giddy to the grave. But one touch with the finger of his love, yes, one ray of glory from the upper world, or one word from the mouth of the Saviour, from the bosom of eternity, strikes it all into insignificance, and blots it forever from the mind. The assurance that we were in the presence of an angel, the certainty that we heard the voice of Jesus, and the truth unsullied as it flowed from a pure personage, dictated by the will of God, is to me past deception, and I shall ever look upon this expression of the Saviour's goodness with wonder and thanksgiving while I am permitted to tarry, and in those mansions where perfection dwells and sin never comes, I hope to adore in that day which shall never cease. End quote. This description and fervent testimony was written in 1834. Four years later, however, Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated from the church. He left the state where the church was located and never again returned to the saints during the lifetime of the prophet Joseph Smith. But he remained true to his testimony to the last. There was no doubt in his mind as to the reality of the vision he had beheld. He had felt the hands of the angels upon his head. There was no denying the fact that had taken place. His steadfastness in this testimony included also the ministration of Peter, James, and John. Oliver Cowdery returned to the church at Canesville, Iowa, in 1848. He had been out of the church for eleven years. On his readmittance into the church, he delivered a public discourse in which he said, quote, I was present with Joseph when a holy angel from God came down from heaven and conferred on us, or restored, the lesser or erotic priesthood, and said to us at the same time that it should remain upon the earth while the earth stands. I was also present with Joseph when the higher or Melchizedek priesthood was conferred by the holy angels from on high. This priesthood we then conferred on each other by the will and commandment of God. Less than three months later, under date January 13, 1849, Oliver Cowdery gave a signed statement to Samuel W. Richards. In that statement, Cowdery said, quote, John the Baptist, holding the keys of the Aaronic Priesthood, Peter, James, and John, holding the keys of the Melchizedek Priesthood, have also ministered for those who shall be heirs to salvation, and with those administrations ordained men to the same priesthood. These priesthoods, with their authority, are now, and must continue to be in the body of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Accept assurances, dear brother, of the unfeigned prayer of him who, in connection with Joseph the Seer, was blessed with the above administrations. End quote. 
Thus did Oliver Cowdery testify to the last, as he did to the testimony of the Book of Mormon, that he was with the Prophet when the Holy Priesthood was restored, and shared the restoration with him. It is certainly significant that the great manifestations in which John the Baptizer and the Apostles Peter, James, and John appeared to restore the Holy Priesthood did not happen to Joseph Smith alone. A mere impostor would undoubtedly have had them so occur. Oliver Cowdery also received the Aaronic Priesthood. He, too, was ordained an apostle. He became the second elder of the church, almost a joint president with the prophet himself. Although he became estranged from the prophet, he remained true to his testimony, and at the last he returned to the fold. Not a single important step in the progress of the restoration was taken without corroborative testimony or the presence of witnesses. Footnote. Since these chapters were written, the following invaluable testimony has appeared in the Improvement Era for March 1912. The testimony is written by Jacob F. Gates of Salt Lake City, whose father Jacob Gates was in his day a member of the First Council of Seventy. Quote, My father, Jacob Gates, while on his way to England in 1849, stopped at the town of Richmond, where lived, at that time, Oliver Cowdery. Hearing that Oliver was in poor health, and wishing to renew old acquaintance, as they had been friends in earlier days, Father called on him at his home. Their conversation during the visit drifted to early church history, and to their mutual experiences during the troublous times in Missouri and Illinois. Finally Father put this question to him. Oliver, said he, I want you to tell me the whole truth about your testimony concerning the Book of Mormon. The testimony sent forth to the world over your signature and found in the front of that book. Was your testimony based on a dream? Was it the imagination of your mind? Was it an illusion, a myth? Tell me truthfully. To question him thus seemed to touch Oliver very deeply. He answered not a word, but arose from his easy chair, went to the bookcase, took down a Book of Mormon of the first edition, turned to the testimony of the three witnesses, and read in the most solemn manner the words to which he had subscribed his name nearly twenty years before. Facing my father, he said, Jacob, I want you to remember what I say to you. I am a dying man, and what would it profit me to tell you a lie? I know, said he, that this Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. My eyes saw, my ears heard, and my understanding was touched, and I know that whereof I testified is true. It was no dream, no vain imagining of the mind. It was real. Then Father asked him about the angel under whose hands he received the priesthood, to which he made answer this, Jacob, I felt the hand of the angel on my head as plainly as I could feel yours, and could hear his voice as I now hear yours. Then Father asked the question, If all that you tell me is true, why did you leave the church? Oliver made only this explanation, said he, When I left the church, I felt wicked, I felt like shedding blood, but I have got all over that now. State of Utah, County of Salt Lake Jacob F. Gates of Salt Lake City, being first duly sworn, deposes and says that he is a citizen of the United States, of the age of fifty-seven years, and that he is the son of Jacob Gates, who, prior to his death, 
related to a fiant a conversation which he had with Oliver Cowdery at the town of Richmond, State of Missouri, and that the above and foregoing is a true and correct statement of said conversation, as given to him by his father. Jacob F. Gates, subscribed and sworn to before me this 30th day of January, 1912. Arthur Winter, Notary Public. My commission expires December 3rd, 1915. The gospel restored through the ministry of the prophet Joseph Smith was not only for the living, but also for the dead. Those who had passed away before the gospel was restored must also have the privilege of obeying it. The first great message of the angel Moroni to the young seer was that the fathers cannot be made perfect without the children, nor the children without the fathers. Even after receiving the holy priesthood then, it became necessary further to receive divine commission to promulgate the gospel among the living, among both Jew and Gentile, and divine authority to officiate vicariously for the dead. Joseph Smith tells in Revelation that both commission and authority to perform these duties were confined in a divine manifestation in the Kirtland Temple. Moses committed the keys of the gathering of Israel, Elias committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, and Elijah restored authority to perform vicarious works for the dead. Moreover, Jesus himself appeared in the holy house and commended the work of his servant, the prophet. That these holy men did actually appear and commit the keys of authority to perform special labors, Joseph Smith affirms in all seriousness. Happily again, Joseph Smith was not alone in receiving these divine manifestations. Oliver Cowdery was once more with him, and once again Oliver Cowdery bears corroborative testimony. More than that, he was an eyewitness and a partaker of the blessings. He bears direct testimony to the reality of the visions. And as with the testimony of three witnesses, and the visits of John the Baptizer, and Peter, James, and John, so also now Oliver Cowdery bears his testimony faithfully to the last. Not a single important step in the progress of the Restoration was taken without corroborative testimony or the presence of witnesses. The chain of evidence is thus complete. The authority necessary for the promulgation of the gospel in the establishment of the church and all the working principles of the gospel have been restored. Every important act of restoration is attested by belief-worthy witnesses. These witnesses are eleven in number, eight of whom are not in any way related to the prophet. Their testimony has never been impeached. If such an array of evidence and worthy testimony were presented in a federal court, the jury would hardly need to retire for consultation. They might hand in a unanimous verdict at once. Yet the evidence here presented for the reality of the divine acts of the Restoration is often called into question. The student at school accepts with perfect faith principles of science that he cannot himself demonstrate and is willing almost to lay down his life in defense of these principles. He is told, for example, for he cannot prove it himself, that there is an attractive or repulsive force operative in the universe, and that that force varies directly as the product of the masses between which it is operating, and inversely as the square of the distance between them. This is the law of gravitation laid down by Sir Isaac Newton. The student believes it, as he believes a thousand other principles presented to him in more or less arbitrary fashion. Yet many of the established principles of science are not half so well authenticated 
as are the acts of the restoration of the gospel in the dispensation of the fullness of times in his divine wisdom the lord god has wonderfully safeguarded every act in the story of the restoration so that there can be no reasonable question as to its reality says the apostle paul in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established note there is still another important witness to the reality of the revelation of the prophet joseph smith this witness does not testify however to the restoration of any authority of the gospel section seventy six of the book of doctrine and covenants relates the wonderful vision of glories joseph smith was accompanied in this vision by sidney rigdon sidney rigdon was excommunicated september eighth eighteen forty four like the other witnesses however rigdon remained true to the testimony that he had seen a vision sidney rigdon died out of the church his son john w rigdon testifies as follows quote, when i went to father just before his death and told him that if he knew anything regarding the coming forth of the book of mormon that had not been told he owed it as a duty to himself and his family to tell it he reiterated that he had but one story to tell and that was the story told him by the prophet joseph smith that the records from which the book was taken were engraved on gold plates father then testified to me that joseph was a prophet of god and that an angel had handed him the plates from which was taken the book of mormon End of chapter 21